This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by the Maryland Institute College of Art. MICA's professional graduate program in information visualization trains designers and analysts to translate data into compelling visual narratives. Benefit from the resources of a premier college of art and design while learning online. Earn your information visualization degree in just 15 months. Expert faculty includes Andy Kirk, John Schwabish, Marissa Peacock, and Rob Rolleston. Learn more at mica.edu slash mpsinviz. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm joined this week with Kennedy Elliott from the Washington Post, graphics editor galore, expertise. Um, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, excited to see you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. At the new Washington Post building. I'm excited that you're here with me. I know. It's, <laughs> I know, but we're at the Washington Post building. It's quite lovely. Yeah. It's brand new. Brand new. So we have lots to talk about. Um, let's talk about the latest greatest. Well, maybe it's not the latest greatest project, but the latest greatest award. Yeah. Um, now called Fatal Force. Yes. Uh, the police investigations project. You and many many, other, other, many others many worked other on people. many others. Yeah. Um, yeah. but winner of a recent Pulitzer. Yes. Yeah. So that's we were really excited. It was very exciting. It's um, it's actually the third project I've worked on um, since I've been at the Post that mm-hmm. has gotten a Pulitzer, which is incredible. But this one was definitely I had the most, mm-hmm. much more involvement in, which was really great. But there's a lot of people involved. I was just talking about this earlier today, but it's just a big collaborative project, obviously, and it took a long, long time to uh, collect the data. And I honestly had no part in in collecting or calling police departments, or I can't take any credit for that. But I definitely helped with the. Um, development of the database, the front-end work, and the front-facing. So for those who haven't, may not have seen it, can you sort of describe the the project itself and then talk about maybe a little bit of how it was pulled together? Because there's lots of different aspects mm-hmm. to it, I would assume, crossing lots of different departments at the, at the paper. Yeah, well, it was uh, mostly our national desk working on it. Um, we looked into, uh, astoundingly, in uh, the U.S., we don't have any central tracking of uh, when police shoot and kill civilians. And Wes Lowry, apparently, uh, the end of 2014, I think, had an idea, or maybe at the beginning of 2015, had the idea to track every single shooting uh, that happened in America. And it just kind of took flight. And we we are fortunate to be at the Washington Post to have the resources to have researchers diligently track all this information. And a gentleman on my team who is very, very smart and great built a database for all mm-hmm. the, an internal database for all their uh, tracking. It's John Meiskins. It was really helpful because we ended up calling police departments three and four and five times trying to get to the bottom of these details. And you need to know how many times you bugged. So, yeah. you know, it just yeah. is, there's all kinds of, you know, metadata that is needed to even start tracking this, this data. And we actually collected quite more than we ended up publishing um, just because we want to make sure we're representing everything correctly. Mm-hmm. So the database itself is quite large. Yeah. We, we track things like a person who died, their race, their, you know, age, their gender, this certain situational properties of the events, like if they're running away or if they had a gun or if they're, you know, what weapon they were armed with, if any, um, all kinds of things like that. And uh, we built a big database and that database was, is, it was great. We had a series of stories that ran throughout the year, obviously, but the database helped inform the stories moving forward. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Which is really powerful. I mean, it's, you know, hats off to the our amazing researchers who were collecting and cleaning yeah. and making sure the data was as accurate as possible, talking to families and and um, police departments and all of that. Um, but it's it's just really interesting as it grows. You're not mm. even sure what kind of patterns are going to evolve throughout yeah. the year. And that database helps inform that uh, insight, right. which is cool. It's a living thing right. right still is so how how do researchers or, or reporters at the post use use it so is it a is it within an internal tool or database that they can go and extract and 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 then do stories off of that or mm-hmm. um, do they talk to the researchers do they talk to you if they need to use it how, how what's that workflow now that it's sort of mm-hmm. existing and living how does it um, how does it work from there? Uh, yeah, we have, a, we have, like I said, our internal database is a little bit more robust and um, we are tracking more information in 2016, um, which will be exciting as that progresses. There are quite a few people that have access to the internal database and, can, mm-hmm. you know, obviously log data and make changes and, you know, parse things and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're always welcome to use the front facing database as well, to, to which has a, the visualization component. Yeah, right. um, and that's, improved a little bit this year for we we have a new one for 2016 so they can slice it any way they want and pursue like any sort of investigation into the data that they want but um and they can also they have the power to publish the data like certain people will have the power to publish when when new information comes in and then they get it to a point where they're happy with and um you know we limit that to a few key people that you know are handling the data um but yeah, it's it's very anyone in the newsroom can access the, right. the site at any time. So, does it feel weird to you that your the Washington Post is building a database that maybe the government should be collecting <laughs> and putting out? Like, does that does that yeah. strike you as odd? Does it feel odd, or do you feel like, well, it's just a gap that someone needs to fill? Yeah, this is. I mean, that is exactly why journal journalism exists Mm -hmm. um i think that's exactly why we're here and um it's really fun to be a part of something that and i hate to be cliche but that affects change Mm -hmm. Um, the fbi has said that they're going to start tracking this data in 2017 which is incredible to be the reason why you know that that sort of change is happening um who knows uh, if we'll be continuing in 2017, just to, for yeah, comparison, right? Comparative purposes, but um, you know, it's really it's really incredible. There's a lot of journalism out there that affects that kind of change, and um, you don't usually work on yeah. stuff like that, but <laughs> it is really cool to do that. Um, and I don't think it's awkward at all. I think that's that's why journalism exists, and that's part of what we can do to to help. Right. Um. So let's switch gears a little bit because we're talking about research here at the Post, and you recently gave a talk at OpenVizConf on research in the data visualization field. Yeah. So thirty-nine <laughs> research papers in thirty minutes. Yeah. A tour de force of the of the field. Yeah. So I don't want to ask you to lay down the the rules here for, for yeah. listeners, but um, how did it feel to sort of I mean, did it, did it feel like you were sort of taking yourself out of your comfort zone Absolutely. and diving into so like this academic fun. literature? And so like, what was that experience like? Yeah, it was really uncomfortable because uh, for me, I just, um, I mean, I kind of laid it out in the beginning there, but I, you know, we're practitioners, you know, I've suddenly kind of become aware of how much in the academic world exists mm-hmm. um, outside of my, you know, realm of knowledge. And I'm so interested in it. I've been interested in it for years. But I, I don't really understand how expansive it is and how many wonderful things people are doing because I feel like our spheres don't really collide yeah. that often, unfortunately. I just am really interested to see what other people have come up with that do completely different things than I do. 
Um, but it's really uncomfortable reading <laughs> papers and I don't have that kind of background. Um, I think if my life had taken a dramatically different twist, like really early on, I might be in that kind right. of environment. Yeah. Like I've always been kind of interested in academia, but so it is really awkward. And I, you know, I don't know the things that they know and, and it's hard for me to evaluate their work, but I am interested in kind of reading how they fashion their experiments and um, the kinds of things that they tested for and the kinds of things that they're interested in, in pursuing in research and the kind of results that they came up with. So yeah. that was sort of my basic right. premise. Like I, I just wanted to relay what I read yeah. Ra it, rather than saying like, Oh, this says this, let's, I'm going to prescribe that, that you rule. do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. It was just sort of like an investigation into, and like a lot of the studies were from so many years ago. Um, I had a couple from like one from the two from the twenties and one from the thirties and eighties and nineties and you know et cetera, and you just wonder how how visual literacy changes and how, yeah. you know, and I mean even today academic papers can take so long to publish. You wonder what kinds of things people are now familiar with um, that just you know might not be the case when you started writing the paper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, did you have a favorite? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think there were 37. 37, okay. I think okay. there were 37. Um, but yeah, I had a couple of ones that I really liked for odd reasons or two that stood out for, to me. One of them was this one on line drawings and they're testing computer alg algorithms um, for, uh, you know, if like the computer algorithm to, to draw this like, you know, random object was as good as like an artistic, like a human drawing. Yeah. And that doesn't pertain to my job at all. I don't do any <laughs> sketching. I like literally have never had a use case for this kind of thing ever. But for some reason, it was just delightful to me because of the way that they tested. I thought it was just really kind of novel. I started reading the paper. I was like, how the heck are they going to test this? Yeah. And then they like tested for like screwdriver type of tools and like weird uh -huh. kind of like tooly things that I'm not even that familiar with myself. But um, they put like these little gauges on the drawing and they got the Mechanical Turk participants to rotate the gauge to kind of like match the angle of the, its dimension, of the, of like the how, they, yeah, how yeah. they perceived where it laid huh. on that object. I thought that was really funny. I don't yeah. know why that I like that so much, <laughs> but I did. Um, and then there's another one by, uh, I think, John Hare and um, some of his, uh, you know, several other co-authors. Mm -hmm. And they're testing for another computer algorithm for assigning semantically resonant colors to different keywords. Yeah. That was the very last one I presented. And I just thought it was kind of funny um, because... Their algorithm was pretty straightforward. It scraped Google images and I'm sure it had some sort of like, you know, preference that it gave to certain colors that in the Google images that it retrieved based on a keyword. Right. And it's just kind of like, I feel like that can open the door for some really cool things. And it can also open the door for some really like funny computer type errors. <laughs> yeah. And um, they eventually bet against their algorithm. They, they had a human person devise a palette. Um, that was more that was also semantically resonant, and they tested it against that one. And it's just it's just kind of funny when you go through all that trouble to to devise an algorithm, and then you're like, yeah, but humans are still probably better, you know? Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's just I I don't know. It's just really cool. So now that you've read all these and probably have talked to a number of different academics, do you see a path by which academics and practitioners? can or should i mean i think they should talk i mean yeah. i think we both agree that they should talk more but do you see a path by which they can talk more or 
you know, ways to provide incentives yeah. for one group or another to say, hey, we need this thing, you should be doing this? Or is it just sort of like, this is the status quo, the academics are over there, the practitioners are over there? Yeah, no way. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I hate to just say that, but it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I still feel largely ignorant of, you know, the needs and, and limitations of the academic community. And I'm sure they feel the same way about people like me. Um, and so I don't feel like I fully kind of grasp you know, their kind of culture yeah. and environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's totally fine. I just, I'm not, I don't feel like an expert at this point, but I really, I mean, I think conferences are a great way to mm-hmm. kind of bridge that gap. I mean, everyone is so um, excited to share information, especially at places like OpenViz. Yeah. Um, I feel like everyone is just so happy to be in the same room together. It's such a great feeling. Um, and that, that really helps a lot. I just, I don't, I don't honestly know what the best way to do it is. I mean, I think, I think part of it is just me kind of working in a bubble and I need to Mm -hmm. get out more, you know, when people publish things on blogs and. Yeah. But clearly it's not just you, right? It's like everybody's in their own little bubble. So yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's easy, you know, it's like working in a newsroom is hard. It's very driven by deadlines and stressful. And I'm sure academia has its own set of, you know, stresses and, just easier to talk to your peers yeah, that understand right. your jargon and where you're coming from. But I guess I haven't really thought of what a good solution would be, yeah. but definitely just any opportunity for crossover. Mm-hmm. Any, yeah, any, any, any yeah. right. Um, good. So I want to switch gears one last time um, because <laughs> we have, um, we've talked about uh, interactivity in the past. So I want to yeah. talk about it again. So what are your f- current sort of feelings on interactivity in data visualization? Is it always good are there limits? Are is the field sort of doing a good job with interactivity? Are we dropping the ball? Mm-hmm. When I say we, I don't yeah. really know no, what we no. means, but okay. Yeah, no. But like, is the field dropping the ball on like the mobile side? Is the virtual reality? Mm-hmm. Like, do you see virtual reality? Mm-hmm. I guess. I guess the the one thing uh, I've talked about with with several previous guests is whether the sort of gratuitous interactivity mm-hmm. is is worthwhile. So. You mm-hmm. click on a bar and the data number pops up. Is that is that worthwhile? So, yeah. do you have sort of thoughts on like where you end up putting your activity when you when you do your stories and mm-hmm. where it's useful and where it's not? Yeah, well, I mean, we definitely don't want to make the reader do additional work to um, gather information in a graphic. Um, and I know that you know Archie Say just mm-hmm. you know had his uh, came up with this great uh, kind of mantra philosophy about not having interactivity unless it's absolutely necessary, which I think everyone would definitely agree with. And it's nice to have someone kind of establish that openly. I think in general, and this has been the case for the last several years, so this mm-hmm. is nothing novel, but we're moving away from publishing these big databases where readers kind of interact with them and, you know, have to kind of take it, kind of extract what the most important things are. Yeah. Um, to a place where we're kind of laying out what they should be getting specifically, just in maybe like little snapshots of a database. Um, I think that, you know, when tools like D3 and how much JavaScript has really become an essential tool within the last few years in the newsroom, we get so excited that we have these new tools and we can do all these cool things. And then it kind of, we're like, okay, how do people really want to see this information? And how do you tell a story and all of that? And so that's kind of a natural, kind of a natural course I see tools being used like D3 a lot more for information retrieval. And so we we tend to work really hard cleaning data and making sense of it in the background Mm -hmm. and doing like some just like throwing up crazy visualizations with the data and just trying to see 
what the data is showing. Mm-hmm. And then maybe for publication, we'll tone it da- down. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so you'll see it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Like we put a lot of energy into just trying to test it, like yeah. see how elastic it is, see, you know, where the fun spots are, what the interesting spots are. And then for publication, we'll, you know, have something much simpler and you would never, ever know that we had some crazy right. graph. And, right. Tone it all the yeah. way back down. Yeah. Just yeah. so that it's, we're not relying on that wow factor. We're, just trying to tell a really straightforward story that mm-hmm. people are going to understand. Right. So I definitely don't think interactivity is necessary. I think that a lot of these tools that can include interactivity like JavaScript and D3 and all of that, we use those mostly just to render shapes in the browser. You know, that's, okay. that's a really powerful thing that D3 has given us and to do animation and that kind of thing. Um, but we don't want to make the reader work too hard to get the information, obviously. Yeah. So in a project like um, Fatal Force, so you're, you're publishing this huge database. Mm-hmm. And so when you start working with the reporters, are you trying to guide them through how to like pick out the story so that it's not giving this just, here's a big database to the reader, but like we're yeah. going to pull out some interesting stories. Are you helping other folks, guiding them through the data and the, and the tools that you're creating maybe internally and then whatever comes out later sort of stripped down? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think with Fatal Force, it worked a little bit in the, the other way around. I think people were really familiar with the data and they were helping me understand it more mm-hmm. okay. um, so that I could make recommendations on how to visualize it because I, I kind of came into that a relatively late in terms of the group I, towards mid last year. So people had already been kind of hunkered down working on it for a while. So, um, but yes, I mean, once if I'm kind of owning a data project from the beginning and I feel like I've been making reporting calls or, you know, I feel more familiar, like there, we have two, um, computer-assisted reporters on the team, um, Jan and Ted, they're both really, really, really smart people. And they often are the ones that go really deep into the data. Yeah. And they are the ones informing reporters like, you know, you, you can't parse this data this way. You know, it needs to be, you need to have, you know, different baseline or mm-hmm. th- they just, they get really deep into it. Yeah. And I definitely do that many times in several pro- projects as well, because, you know, I'll, we're just trying to strive to, to tell an accurate story. Right. Um, Interesting. So let me ask you one last question then on storytelling. So how important is it when you are working with the data and you're creating the visualizations, you're creating databases, how important is it to get the sort of individual stories, to, to get the reader to connect mm-hmm. with a person or a place or yeah. a thing, right? A noun. Yeah. Um, like how important is that when, when you're thinking about a story and developing it? Very important. I think a lot of times that's why you'll see a lot of interactive saying like, you know, enter your zip code in and yeah. find this, you know, yeah. what matters to you. And we've gotten really good at writing Robotex, customizable, but still scalable mm-hmm. um, to, you know, people's locations or demographics or whatever. Um, so that definitely, you know, when you feel like you have the opportunity to do that and mm-hmm. do it well, and not just superficially, I think that really can make a difference. I, you know, I'm not sure if that's the, I'm not sure if that's the best way to do it or if that's the only way, but and it's definitely a case by case scenario. You can't do that with every single data set, obviously. Um, but that's why journalism, that's why, you know, some journalists are just amazing. They are, they are able yeah. to connect in that way. Yeah. Like Eli Saslow's uh, series on food stamps and, um, yeah. and uh, food hunger, you know, and poverty um, was so wonderful because he really told those stories from the heart. Um, right. And so many other journalists are like that as well. I think that's timeless. It's interesting because you and, and journalists spend a lot of time trying to tell those stories mm-hmm. and you've done some work now sort of diving into what the academics do. <clears throat> and from my perspective, like researchers and academics who are doing data visualization could benefit really from talking to actual people 
mm-hmm. and telling their stories. Yeah. And so it's like, like you said, trying to get people to pop their bubbles a little bit and yeah. uh, figure yeah. out all these different things. Yeah. Interesting. Um, great. Well, um, thanks for coming on. This was fun. No, absolutely. It's super fun. And congrats on like everything, thanks. right? <laughs> National awards, big talks at conferences. Yeah. Great. Appreciate it. Um, thanks for coming on. And thanks to everyone for listening. Of course, if you have comments or suggestions, please let me know on the site or on Twitter or please review the show on your favorite podcast provider. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz Podcast is brought to you by the Maryland Institute College of Art. MICA's professional graduate program in information visualization trains designers and analysts to translate data into compelling visual narratives. Benefit from the resources of a premier college of art and design while learning online. Earn your information visualization degree in just 15 months. Expert faculty includes Andy Kirk, John Schwabish, Marissa Peacock, and Rob Rolleston. Learn more at mica.edu slash mpsinviz.